smartcast you're listening to a hindustan times production brought to you by hd smartcast you're listening to on the record and my guest this week is dr farah ahmed dr ahmed is a teacher at the melbourne law school and before that she was teaching at the university of oxford where she also did her dphil and her mphil in law and religious law is an area of specialization for her the reason we have dr ahmed as a guest is because throughout the country the big story for the last few days has been the hijab controversy when a few girls who study in a publicly funded college in udupi karnataka decided to take on their college for their new rule which said they wouldn't be allowed in for their classes if they wore the traditional headscarf or head covering now this has actually elicited and evoked a major row across the country is the hijab an essential part of islam or not i speak with professor ahmed to understand the intricacies of law and when the college insists that the uniform and not wearing the hijab is key are they actually stopping the constitutional right to practice one's faith professor faram ahmed thank you so much for speaking with hindustan times i want to start off by just telling our listeners a little bit about you i know that you know you teach now at the melbourne law school and before that uh, you used to teach at queens college um university of oxford where you also studied your mphil and your dphil uh, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about your work and how it pertains to the issue that we are talking about today sure snetra it's a pleasure to be here thank you so much for having me so my work is primarily on public law that is constitutional law and administrative law i'm also really interested in legal philosophy that is moral questions in the law so the you know the issues that we're going to talk about today i think um bear on all of these uh, fields of law so of course one of the things i mean this issue has been uh, dominating our headlines for the past couple of weeks i'm speaking mm. about a group of women young girls mm. in udupi in karnataka uh, who wear hijab uh, to school every day they've mm-hmm. been now stopped by uh, an order that was passed by the school and that orders insisting on uniformity uh, mm-hmm. and uh, asking for no one to wear any object or anything associated with any religion now that has dominated our headlines and now of course we have daily hearings in the karnataka high court mm-hmm. i wanted to ask you i know you've been away from india for quite some time because mm-hmm. of your work and your education how closely have you been following it and what do you make of this issue from where you are at well yeah i've been i've been following it relatively closely because i think it does raise very important legal issues very important constitutional issues and quite frankly um the actions here are quite um extreme they're quite um you know they they're quite 
significant. And so, so I have been very interested in what's going on because I think, you know, you characterized what was happening um, absolutely in a way that I would agree. And I would characterize it maybe even a little bit more strongly because what the state is doing, what the, what the state funded schools are doing, and that's, I think, the state acting through these schools, is requiring women to disrobe, that is, take out part of their clothing in order to access education. It's making disrobing a precondition for accessing education. It's physically stopping women from accessing education because they're covering their head. And I think in some of these schools, they're actually segregating students on the basis of religion. So in fact, I think the legal issues, even though the legal issues I think are not that difficult, they're pretty straightforward in my view. But What's actually happening, especially when we're thinking, you know, when we consider the fact that this is happening to children trying to access education, it's it's very concerning. Dr. Ahmed, let me get this straight, because, you know, I'm, I'm of course, I'm a journalist, but I'm a lay person. Mm. You're saying that this college, by bringing out or reiterating, they're saying, you know, mm. it's always been there, but mm-hmm. uh, our reporting shows that. There was no reference. The reference to hijab wasn't particularly there. You're saying that the state is acting through these colleges. So in a way, it is the state which is uh, mandating that the women, as you say, disrobe in order to get their education. Yes, I think that's true, because I think whenever anybody which receives state funding acts, then I think the state is complicit in that. So we cannot say that just because a school or a college is, you know, technically independent in some sense, that that's not the state acting. So that's, I mean, I guess that's the first point I would like to make. But I think just responding to what you said about, you know, when this direction came up and so on, I said to you, I I think the legal issues are actually quite straightforward. I understand that there's a hearing going on and all that, but I think it's quite straightforward because I actually cannot see any, even on the face, even um, prima facie authority for what is happening. Because based and you know, I'm happy to have someone point me in the direction of this information, but I have not been able to access any rule clearly stating anywhere that these young women are not able to wear the hijab or cover their hair and come to school. I have not seen that. Now, what the state is saying is that they are claiming that they have this government order and that government order is in the public realm. Yes, there's a, a, a government order and they say that that is mandated or that they have power to pass that order because of the Karnataka Education Act. But what the order actually does is to say that certain other bodies, certain private bodies, like including schools and the college development committees, they have the power to make uh, provisions on uniforms. But we haven't actually seen any of these provisions. And that's a fundamental problem because India is committed to the rule of law. And the rule of law means that the law has to be accessible. It has to be clear. It has to be certain. It has to be predictable. That is, any citizen of India, including these young women, if they want, if someone tells them you cannot do this or you cannot enter or you cannot wear this, they have to be able to point to a very clear 
clear legal regulation, a clear law that says why they can't do this. And in this particular case, there is no such regulation. Because I've looked at the government order, it has a lot of dog whistle type statements. It has a lot of um, rhetoric. It um, talks about three cases that have nothing to do with this issue whatsoever, including a Supreme Court case and some high court cases. But it actually does not state that these women cannot wear a headscarf and come to college. So as I mean, to me, you know, there are all these constitutional issues that we can get into, and I'm happy to talk about them. But it's actually a much more fundamental problem where there is no law whatsoever that um, validates, that empowers the schools and colleges to act in this way. Can you elaborate on which parts of this order are like dog whistles? Well, so the uh, the initial part of the order, now I, I have to say that I read a translation, I don't uh, read Kannada, but I've read two different translations, so I feel, you know, fairly confident that um, I've understood the meaning. There are several parts of the order that talk about public order, that talk about uh, unity, that talk about um, people, uh, you know, been problems recently. And so there's this kind of long narrative in the beginning that talks about that. And then there's a section of the order that, as I say, uh, cites these three cases, four cases maybe that have nothing to do with this issue in my view, and says that um, there is no fundamental right to wear a headscarf, but then doesn't actually lay down that these women will not be able to wear a headscarf. As they say, all they say is that these other bodies can make rules, and we don't know where those rules are, what those rules are, um, and how to locate them. Interesting. So, so just the basis, you're saying that just the, why legally it's straightforward, you're telling us, is because just mm. on the basis of that order, you can't stop women from you know, wearing the hijab as they've been used to doing. And we know from our reporting uh, that many of the people, students or teachers going there say that they remember for years uh, it not being a problem, mm. women wearing hijab. Mm. That doesn't surprise me because, I mean, you have the sense on the ground of, uh, of what, what people are saying. I don't I don't have that. It doesn't surprise me what you're saying, because there is nothing in this order that, you know, points to a past regulation or a past rule that ban the hijab in uh, in these schools. And, you know, the other thing is, even if, you know, even if uh, someone accepts that this order is, you know, okay, fine. The order actually bans the hijab, and there's, you know, it's not, it's not really, uh, maybe it's not entirely clear, but that is what it's doing. The order still has to be justified according to an act. And again, the government is claiming that the order is based on the directives are based on the Karnataka Education Act, and the Karnataka Education Act, you know, is fairly comprehensive. It seems to regulate a lot of the schools and college and, and what they can do in Karnataka. And if you look at this act, it doesn't say anything that in any way um, gives the government the power to ban a headscarf. In fact, it says many things that suggest the opposite. For instance, it says that the government has to uh, work to promote the education of weaker sections of society, of backward classes, and arguably, you know, these young women, by virtue of being women, if nothing else, fall into that. The Act talks about promoting education, uh, about India's 
composite culture, about diversity, uh, about the richness of the heritage of our composite culture. So it talks about all these things that are, in my view, the total opposite of this order. So I don't see how, even if we, you know, if we forget the fact that the order does not ban the hijab, even if you say the order does ban the hijab, the order cannot be justified. It cannot be valid according to the act that the government claims validates it. So, you know, even before we get to the constitutional issues, this order is what we call ultra vires. That is, it is outside the power of the Karnataka Education Act. And before we get into the constitutional thing, because I think that requires a lot of clarity from you mm-hmm. in helping us understand that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, by what you've said about the state being complicit in mm-hmm. uh, in insisting on it being uh, and the school insisting and the college insisting on it being implemented and stopping, we've seen those very disturbing visuals coming from mm-hmm. there, which happen, you know, and, and the things that the women have to go through. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you. Would you agree that the entire issue has become murkier and very, very um, just has kind of spread because of the fact that, you know, in fact, I was I was reading this piece by Jyoti Punwani, a journalist, mm-hmm. and she talked about the fact that this has happened before, but mm-hmm. before what used to happen, which because of the fact a lot of political groups got involved, whether it's the PFI or the ABBP from both sides, mm-hmm. is that whenever a school insisted on something like this, that the parents would have a meeting with the school authorities and they would come to an understanding. Mm-hmm. But that didn't happen here because mm-hmm. of these political groups from both sides getting involved. So mm-hmm. would you would you agree with that? Well, there certainly seems to be, um, you know, as I say, without knowing some of the on the ground details that you have, I would say that there seems to be absolutely a lack of good faith here. Because if even if we forget about, as you say, we're putting to one side, we're not forgetting about, but we're putting to one side the fact that fundamental rights are being breached. We're putting to one side the fact that this is uh, what, the, what the schools are doing is unlawful. If there is a dispute between um, the schools and the student, absolutely what you suggested um, is what you would expect to happen, right? Like you would expect the parties to negotiate in good faith, to negotiate with the mindset that there are these students and it's their best interest that we should think about and uh, we should come to some solution that makes sure that that their best interests are promoted. Um, now, you'd know better than me, but I haven't seen much evidence of that either. So let's come to the constitutionality because obviously it seems it's something that, you know, social media, everyone's talking mm-hmm. about because to some people, it's as clear as it is that our constitution says it gives us the freedom of expression. It gives us the right to practice our faith. Whatever that faith may be, it gives us the practice to do that. Mm. Then why is it that we are having this issue? And then those there are people pointing out that because the constitution also says that the state can then put in limitations to that and can decide what is uh, or or the courts, what is the gray area is deciding what is essential to practicing mm-hmm. one's faith. And, mm-hmm. and I guess that's what the Karnataka High Court is looking at, right? Mm-hmm. And we've seen in previous such disputes as well. So they look mm-hmm. at what is essential to Islam or any particular faith. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so those are all big issues. And so just to just to start with um with the beginning of your comments that there are a number of different constitutional issues here. As you say, there's been a lot of focus on the right to religious freedom, Article 25, and that's absolutely important. I'm not saying that it's not important, but I actually think that for this particular case, there are other fundamental rights that are actually more salient that have been violated uh, in in even clearer way, right? So if I can just mention those first, and yes, then I'm please. really happy. I'm really happy to talk about um, Article 25 and, uh, and and the issues that that raises. So I mean, first of all, sort of related to what I said before about um, the fact that we have to have the rule of law, the law has to be clear, and so on. Article 14 of the Constitution, which protects the equality of law uh, and in e- the equal protection of the law, that article also has been held by the Supreme Court, and this is very, very well established now, to protect us, to protect our citizens of India from arbitrary state action. And what do we mean by arbitrary state action? It's any state action that is not based on reasons, that where the the conclusion or the outcome is not connected to the reason. That is one example of arbitrary state action. So just, you know, related to what I've already said, if you look at the order, the order has all of this stuff, you know, I mean, for lack of a better word, I'll say stuff or words, you know, um, in the beginning. And some of it is absolutely misleading, like the characterization of the case law. And it has no connection, really, what they have said to the fa- to the actual directive and order that they have given. So I think that this is a breach of Article 14, that is our right to be free from arbitrary state action, the fact that there is, um, that, that, that really the state is actually acting arbitrarily here. And I think most salient for me for this particular issue is the right to privacy. Because, you know, going back to the characterization and and what you mentioned about the uh, some of the disturbing images that we've been seeing, and I think we've all seen those images of, you know, uh, young women, girls, um, and uh, teachers as well, having to disrobe in public. Um, this is, to me, just absolutely a central case of a breach of privacy. Because what the Supreme Court has said, and this is in a in a very, very well-known judgment of Putasami, it's, it's made it very clear that there is a right to privacy in the Indian constitution. And if you look at the way they characterize the right to privacy, they talk about intimate decisions. They talk about having a sanctuary. They talk specifically about religious dress. So this, you know, this idea, this image of saying to someone, okay, this is a this is uh, your dress, you have to take out one part of your dress in public. Um, This is an absolute, uh, to my mind, infringement of privacy first and foremost, regardless of everything else. And it is along with that, we can say, I think, that it is a phenomenal infringement of dignity. And again, I think that is what a lot of viewers would have seen when they saw that image, you know, and if they can imagine themselves asked to be, you know, to take out some part of their clothing that they consider essential in that public space, I'm sure they can connect to the fact that it is an indignity. It's a it's a infringement of their dignity. So to me, that is 
absolutely the key issue. And there are also issues, of course, about the right to education, which uh, the court has found is a part of the right to life under Article 21. And as you said earlier, the right to free expression. That is, it's not, a, it's not really just an issue because these people are religious or they're wearing religious clothing. We all, whether we are religious or whether we are not and whether we wear some clothing or we don't we don't have, we don't wear that certain clothing. Um, as citizens of India, we have the right to freely express ourselves, including in what we wear. So I think that is also a really important um, right that has been infringed here. So yeah, I wanted to mention those, but I'm really happy to talk about uh, Article 25 as well. Well, yeah, and, and I wanted to ask you, um, because my colleague did, um, and he's our legal editor, he mm-hmm. did this piece about, you know, he went back and tried to look at the precedents. Mm-hmm. And he looked at this one particular case where uh, an Air Force official mm-hmm. was, um, his work was uh, terminated um, mm-hmm. because he kept facial hair. Uh, and mm-hmm. he argued that it was, uh, you know, an essential part of his faith mm-hmm. and the court ruled against it. According to you, what are the precedents in law which are essential to understanding this case and which will have a bearing uh, on what the Karnataka High Court is looking at right now? Yeah, so I would say, okay, first of all, there's the, I should say, given the example you gave, there are the precedents that are not actually precedents. That is to say that there are precedents that should be distinguished because these are not like cases. So in the example that you gave, uh, so you know, in, in jurisprudence, when we're making law, we're thinking about what the law is or what the law should be. What we're trying to do is apply the like rules, the same rules to like cases, that is cases that are alike. So if cases are not alike, then we can't really take guidance from some other case, which is not really uh, similar in an important way. So I would suggest that this kind of case, that is where we're talking about the Air Force or the Army or this kind of a situation where really there is an absolute paramount state interest in discipline, in people just falling in line uh, of being really, you know, falling under authority right away with no questions asked. There's a, there's a certain, there are certain state interests there. There are certain ethos that goes with that kind of uh, military environment. And so any decision about religious practice that you are making in that situation, I don't think is in any way applicable to a situation of people living in civil society, that is civilians, and certainly not applicable to a situation where we're talking about young women, young girls trying to access education. So if I can just make that point, because sure. that uh, that case, I think, you know, comes up and there are other cases as well that are cited which really if you think about it you know there's that other case as well of Mm -hmm. this um you know where where they brought an order uh Mm -hmm. about uh having exams Mm -hmm. and and i think some uh, muslim uh, girls were not allowed to wear the hijab because they felt that uh, and you know the exams were being held in response to lots mass cheating which of course is a problem in india so Mm -hmm. people address that and they said no to them wearing uh, the hijab because they said it wasn't in it wouldn't serve the purpose of having people wear half sleeve shirts because otherwise they felt it was mm-hmm. and the court seemed to agree um, uh, with the institution there 
so I would would that be a precedent? Well, I mean, I did I did read the news reporting about that, but I didn't actually read the judgment. So I'm I, I'd, I'd have to go back and read the judgment to be clear about whether it actually is a, a helpful precedent or it isn't a helpful precedent. But you know, the other uh, precedent that is sometimes that is cited in the government order is um, one where a girl I think of uh, class six, she wanted to wear a headscarf to an all-girls school. And um, and so then the what the court said, I actually think even though the government is citing it in, in their favor, it actually goes against them because what the what the court said is in this particular situation where you have a girl with only other girls, then it is difficult to argue that covering your hair in that situation is a uh, part of the, the essential religious practice uh, protected under Article 25. So again, yes, I mean, that case seems sort of similar. And so if we had another case where it's an all-girls school, right, and um, you have a very similar situation, then yes, I think that that, it counts as a precedent. But the court was quite careful in that case to make it clear that they were only saying this because this was a very young girl in a girls-only school. So so there are a lot of these precedents that are cited that I think should be... um, you know, should be treated with care and are not really applicable. But in terms of uh, precedents that are important, I mean, there's, I mean, to me, a really important set of precedents uh, comes in, in response to the Biju Emanuel case. So that's a case, um, and, and there are other Jehovah's Witnesses case, cases that are that are really um, quite important and they tell us something really important about the nature of the right to religion. Because those cases where, where you have, where you're dealing with um, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, religious practice, these are cases where children are, for instance, refusing to sing the national anthem. They're refusing to salute the flag. And it's not just India that has dealt with these cases. These cases have come up in other jurisdictions as well because of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, practice. Now, we or those of us who are uh, patriotic might be very unsympathetic to these children and to their parents and say, you know, there might well be people who think, well, that's quite terrible that, you know, these children are not showing respect respect for the flag, not showing respect for the national anthem and so on. But the court has actually protected the rights of these children in these situations. So really, when we have when we when we keep in mind what fundamental rights are for, they are not there to protect things that you agree with, not you personally, but things that we or the majority or anyone else agrees with. Because if some if if there are things that everybody agrees with, then there's no need for any protection, right? No one's going to interfere with it. The fundamental rights are there to protect those who are vulnerable, those who are weaker, those who might be unpopular, those who might be subject to harassment, those who um, those who might be disliked, those who might even be hated. It is those kinds of practices or, pe- or the practices of those people that we have to give the most sacred importance to under the constitution, in my view. And so the Biju Emanuel case and uh, cases to do with Jehovah's Witnesses, to me, really signify the importance of that under our constitution. But we have no way of knowing which precedence the court is going to go by, right? Well, look, I mean, 
to the extent that i mean i i you know i can't predict what the court is going to do but to my mind if we look in a holistic way at the constitution if we look carefully at the uh the legal issues that is the act and the and the orders and so on to my mind um it's quite clear i mean uh and there are certainly precedents that support the idea that this is unlawful on multiple fronts now it is true and and and, and this is what i think you were suggesting before about uh the essential religious practice test the essential religious practice tests are very controversial and it's partly controversial because the precedents are unclear and it's unclear how a court because what the essential religious practice test if i can just step back for a minute and um and 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 explain it the way that i understand it is that article 25 protects religious freedom and freedom of conscience but it allows the state to regulate secular matters that are associated with religion right so what what article 25 is saying yes you have the right to religious freedom but that doesn't mean that any associated secular matters that you know might be tangentially connected to religion you know for instance you have a trust and you're 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 misappropri- misappropriating funds just because it's a religious t- trust doesn't mean that the state's not going to do anything right so it is important as a matter of constitutional law to draw a distinction between what is a religious practice and what is a secular practice that may be connected to religion but it's not really a religious practice it's just it's a secular practice that's associated with religion so because there is this need to make that distinction courts have always had to work out whether something is a religious practice or not a religious practice in most jurisdictions what the courts do or at least the jurisdictions that i am familiar with what courts tend to do is they defer a lot they give a lot of weight to what the uh, claimant what the person who's approaching the court says so if the claimant says look you know it is a religious practice for me to wear you know um pink face paint in this way then the court will say okay if we don't have any uh, reason to think that this person is making this up or they are acting they're not acting bona fide we will accept that you know maybe they have an unusual religious practice but we should protect unusual religious practices just as much as we should uh, protect uh, usual and standard and orthodox religious practices so that's the that's the common uh, position taken in other jurisdictions and other liberal democracies and it was very much the case in the early indian jurisprudence as well now later on the jurisprudence in india shifted so that the indian supreme court um, and other courts started taking the position in that they really needed to look into religious doctrine into the scripture and so on to decide for themselves whether something is an essential religious practice or not so they do say and the law is currently that it is up to the community it is up to the religious practitioners to decide what is an essential religious practice that is the court is looking to that community or to those communities to see what they consider an essential religious practice so uh, and that obviously opens up a can of worms because judges are a lot of things but they are not theologians and even if they are theologians they cannot decide what 
one person's religious practices because if you take any religion i in my view each person is going to have slightly different religious beliefs and the judge cannot really uh, decide what each of those people actually believe so so there's a difficulty for the court in how to determine what is an essential religious practice which they are going to protect now there are yes they can the state can regulate essential religious practices or they can regulate religious practices but there's no grounds in the constitution that apply to this case that would uh, allow them to uh, to infringe or to stop this particular religious practice and on the question of whether it is an essential religious practice to my mind this is also fairly straightforward i mean if this is not uh, a religious practice i mean i'm not a theologian and i'm not going to pretend to be but uh, to my mind if this is not a, a essential religious practice i really i'm not very sure what would qualify as an essential religious practice so if this practice is not protected then i think you might as well say that there's really not much left of the right to religious freedom because any practice any religious practice then becomes um, vulnerable to the state coming in and deciding that it's not essential and prohibiting it so professor ahmed when you say that because you know your view is clear you know mm-hmm. i have to ask you um as as someone who wears a head covering herself and you know we've seen so much debate about this over here i've seen someone um, you know some uh, muslim women also point out you know there seems to be an opinion that that uh, you know the wearing of the hijab mm. is not an expression is an expression they feel uh, of of subjugation uh-huh. and it isn't autonomy or agency uh-huh. so what would you say about that well look i mean to me this is a very common trope um there is and i think this is actually i mean even though you're asking the more general question it it raises actually further constitutional issues because the supreme court has also said that what is forbidden under article 14 is stereotyping and so to me this is a very common trope about muslim women um i mean we can talk about the prejudices more generally about different uh, communities but i think with with muslim women in particular there is this trope of being oppressed being subjugated not being educated not having autonomy not having agency so i think that that narrative um that you have uh, you have uh, you know uh, conveyed fits very well with that so i mean and to me it doesn't really you know i'm in a way i feel like i'm not the person to respond because i think the people yeah. who you should look at and who people should pay attention to are the women who are affected on the ground and you know i don't know what um, what everybody else's reaction is but when i see those women you know they're driving into the colleges very confidently on their on their scooters and they're getting out and they are you know they are demanding that they have the right to education they're demanding that they that they go in they're demanding with you know they're asserting themselves they are they are, they're not you know in any way cowed they're not in any way scared you know to me there's nothing much more that needs to be said beyond look at these women can you really deny their autonomy can you really deny their agency and if you can deny that i'm really not sure how you can deny i mean the what those images um 
reminded me of was, you know, Malala and her braving the Taliban to get an education. And, you know, I mean, are we really going to say that because Malala is where, you know, she covers her hair with a dupatta, because of that, you know, she's not autonomous, because of that, she's not uh, equal, because of that, she's uh, harming equality or something like that. I mean, to me, it's sort of, yeah, I, I'm, in a way, I'm struggling to to respond. No, but I think, I, I think you've explained it really, really well. And I think you answered the question really well. I want to ask you, headscarves has been, and this debate, this particular, in the mm. last one that you said you're struggling to answer, it has mm. been at the center of the, not so much India at all, but mm. it has been so much a center of the headlines in France, right? Mm. So mm. Is, is the controversy... Uh, which is happening is the issue that we're seeing in India very similar to what's happening in France or are there differences? Well, I mean, certainly there are differences uh, in in the social context, um, many differences in the social context. But the biggest difference that, you know, that I see, and obviously, you know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, so I, I see the legal, uh, the legal differences more, that there is a fundamental difference between the laws, the constitutional provisions and the values of the French Republic and India. So when uh, France has these bans on uh, headscarves, those are justified on the grounds of what they call laïcité, which is one particular understanding, what you might translate as secularism. And I have seen people make the argument that, oh, right, so France, you know, does this in the name of secularism. So why should we not do it as well in the, in the name of secularism? We are also committed to secularism much, you know, just as just as they are. But that is actually really a very misleading um, a misleading comparison because if you understand what secularism is in India, what Indian secularism is, it is completely different from French secularism or what what the French call laïcité. And in particular, laïcité is about you know basically uniformity, making everyone the same, homogeneity. And there's a lot of people who have written about how that is oppressive to anyone who is different, anyone who is who doesn't fit the norm, anyone who is not a part of the majority. Indian secularism, it is absolutely clear. And there is no, I don't think that there is any room for, for sort of doubt about it amongst people who are arguing in good faith. Um, Indian secularism is not that. It is not about excluding uh, religious uh, religious practices or religious people from the public or the public sphere. It's not. It's, it's inclusive. It's radically inclusive. If you look at the Constituent Assembly debates and read what the different um, delegates who who drafted the Constitution what they said, you'll see again and again and again this idea of brotherhood despite difference and this idea of India as a composite culture that is not one culture, not a homogenous culture, but many different kinds of cultures coming together and an absolute celebration of difference. In fact, you know, Gandhi used that term absolute difference. And he said, you know, this is not our 
effort is not to uh, to make to to lessen the differences between religion. That is not the the Indian project at all. Although I understand it is some people's project. That is not the project of the Indian Constitution. The effort is to make people brotherly to make people neighborly to make people have that fellowship and fraternity despite what and i'm quoting gandhi here despite what he called an absolute difference they are absolutely different but they are going to uh, but we are brothers right we are sisters so that's the that is the um, aspiration of our constitution that is not the aspiration of the french constitution and that is not the uh, the aspiration of that legal system so even though they might we might translate laicite as secularism and we also have an idea of secularism and you know it's not just me saying this there are you know this is the the scholarly view and the work of rajiv bhargava and others talk talk about this this is not the same idea at all our ideal is one of of um brotherhood of love of neighborliness in the face of difference that should be preserved and celebrated wonderful my final question to you are you disappointed and do you would you agree um with the interpretation of the line that the supreme court took that they refused to get involved with it and they wanted to limit it to one state do you think uh, that's something you agree with um do you mean the interim the interim order yeah 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 look i mean i think that you know given what i have said that uh, these th- this is a pretty clear case of breach of important legal values and important legal rights then naturally it follows that when you're talking about suspending those rights or suspending uh, those values that is very concerning because um i think we'd all like to think that there shouldn't be a single day where every citizen of india doesn't have their rights under the constitution respected so um yeah i think it is uh, unfortunate Professor Ahmed, thank you so much for speaking with Hindustan Times. It's really been enlightening. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Sunitra. If you enjoyed this edition of On the Record, don't forget to write to us. You can contact me on Twitter at Sunitra C and on Instagram, Miss Sunitra, to tell me what you thought of this interview and if you'd like me to interview a particular person. That's it for now. Do like and subscribe and share this podcast. I'll be back again with another edition till then goodbye This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast HD Smartcast